Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, Michael O'Hara and Friends to the Rescue. And the author is Patricia Richardson, and Patricia joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. We're going to talk about leprechauns, and these folks are really, really great example for children, and you'll explain how that works in... It's just, uh, I think, we're all kind of fascinated by leprechauns. We're not quite sure what they are, what they're all about. (laughs) Leprechauns, once found only in Ireland, live among us. Sightings have been reported from Pennsylvania all the way to California, and lately there are rumors from as far away as Germany, and these leprechauns, well, they just are real helpful, aren't they? Oh, quite definitely. Always willing to help each other and always willing to help somebody in need. Well, there you go. That's what we all want. We, we should be doing as humans, right? We all should be doing that. So they're great examples to us. Absolutely. Great examples for children, too. So tell us, Patricia, a little bit about your background and why you wrote this book. Well, I had already written one book about leprechauns, and this just kept popping into my mind. And after two or three days, I thought, well, maybe you could put it on paper and see if anything comes of it. And so I, that's when I began to write it. I had no plan originally. It just kind of came out in fits and starts and bits and pieces. Why do you focus so much on children's imaginations? Because I think it's important to have an imagination. And I think that if you take away imagination from children, they've really lost something. You know, if, if you watch a child who's watching television, they have this kind of blank stare. And they're, they're not thinking for themselves, I don't believe. But they're, the television's telling them what to think. And so they've lost the ability for their mind to, to expand and, and, in short, to imagine. And... Uh, there's just a certain magic that's gone from their lives. And so the importance, again, of the parents reading to children and, and creating and stimulating that imagination. Well, I, I think that the reason I originally went off on this tack was we were read to, um, and there were eight of us, we were read to from a very, very early age until we learned to read for ourselves. We were very um, willing readers. We learned easily. Of course, we were taught phonetically, which I believe firmly helps. And, and I think that the fact that our parents read to us put some kind of a desire in us, and, and um, we just wanted to read. And I think it helped us. That's not particularly well put, but I think a child who's read to slowly uh, develops the desire to want to read themselves. They have better vocabularies, 
They seem to communicate better. And mm-hmm. there are just all types of benefits from reading to your children, other than the fact that you're bonding with them and you're close to them. And that's right. good for you and the child. Right. There's a lot of books written about leprechauns. What sets yours apart from the others? Some of the other books can be a little silly, but I like my leprechauns because children, I think, can relate to them. They're child-sized. They're little people, as we know. They're only two feet tall. But my leprechauns are kind. They help each other. They help others. Um, They promote really good values. You know, it tells children about always to be neat and clean, always, you know, clean your room, always have clean fingernails, comb your hair, never forget to say your prayers, things that I would think a parent would want their child to do, you know. Now, you reference historical events and places in your stories. Why do you do that? I just think I can't resist. I, <laughs> I I'm a, a totally immersed in history. I love it. I, I just can't get enough history. And I just think that, that I just can't. Somehow these threads pop into my mind. I can't let go of them. But it's not a bad thing because there again, you're kind of uh, stimulating a child to want to learn more. The child will want to, oh, well, maybe I should read about that. Or to question the parent in depth about what it was, you know, what, when the event occurred and, and more information. I think it's just another way it triggers children's imagination and, and desire for knowledge. Give us a little overview of the theme of, of your book. Um, Custodio O'Donnell is a, is a leprechaun who's a retired judge, and he and his uh, retired law clerk love to travel, and they've gone to Germany on a trip to see the fall colors in the Black Forest. And while there, uh, Blackstone O'Grady has an accident, and uh, there's poor Custodio O'Donnell all by himself. So he calls on the cell phone to one of his leprechaun friends, and in turn, that friend calls everybody else, and they all blink over to Germany to uh, um, help Custodio O'Donnell um, revive Blackstone O'Grady and put him back on his feet again. So it's just a, it's a story about helping again helping others, and about their just general conviviality, how they get together and, and turn things into good events, you know, once they're together, and enjoy each other's company. And all ends well, which I, I insist on that in my stories, because I think it's That's important. That's important, isn't it? Yeah, like important, to know. For, important for children, for things to work out right. Oh, yeah. I think it makes them feel safe. You know, in some of my stories, uh, the leprechauns are all home safe in bed at the end. And I think those are the kind of stories children like because their parents are reading to them and they know that everything's fine and they feel safe. I I think that's important for the child. Who's the professor? Professor O'Rourke. What kind of a part does he play in the story? Professor O'Rourke... is another leprechaun, but he's gone to uh, Germany to teach at the University of Freiburg. 
And um, that, so they were originally going to go and visit him anyway. So once they've taken care of poor Blackstone O'Grady and he's revived, they all go to the professors for dinner. It's another meeting of all the leprechauns and all of them getting together and visiting. Well, you know, I think it, there again, it's because children find them easily to relate to because they're not overpowering. They're child size. And, but they're everyday problems, but I never make the problem so severe that the child would, would be panicked by it or it would turn the story into a vein that wouldn't be happy for the child, you know. And these leprechauns are not only small like children and they have adult-like problems, but they're always honest, straightforward, and they're just great role models. They are. They're great role models for children. They are that. And that's the and, idea. And they're a family. I mean, that's how the children can relate, because they're all a family. Yes. Yes, that's true. And family's important, and I think it's important to stress that. And, of course, it is a make-believe world, but that's important for a child. Oh, yes, and that's where the imagination comes in. Comes in. Imagining the leprechauns, but also being able to imagine them in their own world, you know, calling on cell phones or going on Skype to visit with each other. Um, it's the best of both worlds for children. And they just kind of merge naturally. Can you give us any uh, example of your allusions to history that add to the storyline? Well, I started it off with the return of uh, the leprechauns who had formerly gone to Spain to live, and they returned at the time of the Spanish Armada. And so I brought the Spanish Armada into the story so that, as a way to a vehicle so that they would be shipwrecked on the coast of Ireland and come home. And once they came home back to Ireland and were shipwrecked, they decided to stay. So I, it didn't become too involved in history, and yet there was the illusion. And the same time, you're trying to create that, I guess, that uh, curiosity in these young people that they'll want to know more, learn about it from maybe a different book or, you know, learn about it from their parents. Right, right. Just a little spark of interest. And, and they won't all pick that up, but um, many of them will. And, and children, you know, have such, their minds are like little sponges, and they just love to learn things. So some of them will, you know, want to know more. You know how children ask questions, you know, endlessly. And so I think there's a certain uh, benefit in it. Well, it sounds like it's just the right kind of storyline to grab the imagination and the interests of children. And obviously they're going to learn a lot about life and a little bit of uh, history and a little bit about uh, other places in the world. Michael O'Hara and Friends to the Rescue, that's the title of the book, and we've been listening to Patricia Richardson. She's the author. Patricia, tell us how to get your book. Uh, it's available from Ex Libris, my publisher, or from Amazon, um, and also from Barnes & Noble. And it's, it's available in uh, Kindle also. Kindle and well, other ebooks. Thank you so much for being with us, Patricia, on Ex Libris on Air.
Thank you, Steve. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana, through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today I'm honored to visit with author Richard Quarantello and discuss his book, Surviving the War Zone, Growing Up East New York, Brooklyn. Welcome, Richard. East New York, Brooklyn, right. I got you. Very uh, Brooklyn, right. Richard, tell our listeners a little bit about your book. Is it a fiction or nonfiction book? It's uh, nonfiction, and uh, it reads like fiction, uh, you know. But uh, I wrote the book uh, basically for my—I wanted my children to know me before uh, uh, before Vietnam, before uh, you know I, I I went to Vietnam, and and uh, how I grew up in Brooklyn, how uh, the times, the um, you know, the, how the times had changed from the the fifties to the late to the late fifties, early sixties, and how uh, how the political uh, Persuasion got so involved it, you know, kind of uh, dumped everything on East New York. They dumped it all, a load of stuff on East New York, and you know, and it's um, it's it's kind of a, a, a street story, basically, uh, you know. And uh, well, you you talk about being being involved or being exposed to to uh, gangs in the fifties, and uh, one of the phrases yeah. you use, East New York in the nineteen fifties was going through peace and prosperity, like the rest of the country. Manifested right. by a positive a family life. I didn't know I was poor. All I knew was those magical years of domestic tranquility. 
That sounds like a lot of us who are probably uh, over 50 years old or 60, some of us. Yeah, and and growing up, I mean, if you were black, Italian, uh, Puerto Rican, it didn't matter. Everybody was in that same economic situation until, again, the local political system got involved, the idealists. You're thinking they were going to make things better. Not 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 long, not like unlike today. You know, <laughs> they still get involved in people's affairs. You know, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, this is this is where this all came from. I and what what inspired I, I, I belong to a street gang. You know, New Lots, the New Lots boys. You did. The, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, uh, I was a young man, and the New Lots boys were like uh, the they did guys. To, to, to emulate at the time, you know, and not that I thought of it when I was really young, but as I grew older, these were the guys that were kind of respected. They were the unorganized kind of uh, gangs, unlike the mafia, the organized gangs that were also in the area. Uh, but, you know, I, I kind of looked up to these guys, you know, because people respected them. And, you know, these... you know I felt I did some of that respect. I was a nice, quiet young man, but, you know, that that wasn't violent. I was always strong. I always had something positive. And uh, and then I met, uh, I don't know if you want to get into it now, but I met Mr. Nero at a very young age when I was 12, 13. And, uh, and he became my mentor. He was a park man. He was a black man that was, uh, I mean, he became my mentor, my character, my style. He kind of um, mentored me into not, not, going into, you know, the drugs and the violence, uh, the other types of violence that, that existed in those areas. Yeah, these, these so, gangs were mostly young guys, weren't they? Oh, young, yeah, we were young. I was I was 13, 15 when I joined the gang. Yeah. Was it more of a system of acceptance in the community, or what did you, yeah, absolutely. What did you think I, it was? I knew these guys from school. I knew these guys. I worked at my uncle's butcher. I knew these guys from passing the park, and, you know, and... Uh, and you know, I, I and they always invited me. The younger guys, not the not the older Watch boys, the younger guys that were just coming up now. And you know, and, and Mr. Nero was training uh, one of one of the guys I knew, Anthony, and I he's training him how to box, teaching him how to box, and and uh, and I asked Mr. Nero if he would teach me because I knew I needed that. I knew you know, talk is one thing, and most people talk, but you 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 have to have you know you have to have what it takes, you know. And I trained real hard at this. I trained real hard at fighting. You know, being a fighter. I mean, I have to, my two sons are fighters. My my son Gregory is now the MMA middleweight amateur champion. You know, and uh, so so we all we all grew up respecting people because we knew that we could damage you. You know, so we respected everyone. You know, like I told my children years ago, when you learn how to fight, you don't have to fight. You can walk away. You know, you can walk away with your head up high. You know, because this- you know you could damage a person. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, does and, this... you, and, and, and you don't want to do that. You know, you don't want to do it. But it's, but it's good to know it builds your character. It also builds character. Does this book have any controversial aspects that uh, might be applicable? Yeah, it, it has some. It can have racial controversy. It depends who reads it and what they get out of it. You know, most what I believe is that, uh, you know, writing this book, you know, you, you could grow up. I, I, I quit school at 16. I don't have that type of an education. You know, uh, you know, I don't have a high, uh, graduating high school or college education. Uh, mine is mainly watching people in business who I work for hard and, and, and street that taught me these are the things I don't want to do. I don't want to be with these people. I don't want to be in the mafia. I don't want to deal drugs. I don't want to do this. 
even though most of my friends, a lot of them did this, you know, join the mafia or the drug dealers, drug addicts in prison all the time, killing, you know, murders and, and things like this. I didn't do it. I never thought of doing it, hijacking. Uh, I never thought of doing it, and I never wanted to do it, you know? And all these guys that did this, like in the mafia, can I kind of rag on them uh, a little bit in the book. But, you know, where's the end? Where does it end? It ends in prison or you're dead. You know, your best friend kills you. It's it's not honorable at all. You know, it's all Hollywood hype. And people like this stuff when when they go to the movies. But it's hype. They didn't keep the neighborhood safe. They brought drugs into the neighborhood. It was the unorganized gangs that kept it safe from all these guys. You know, until they got, most of them got corrupted also. And the guys that didn't, they got married, they moved out to Queens, they moved out to Long Island, they moved to Staten Island, you know, had their own small house with a patch of grass, you know, and, and their kids could go to decent school without having the, the, the problems we had in school. You know, you couldn't stay in school for, for guys like me. You're fighting on a daily basis, you know. So. Now, did any of your friends go through dramatic changes in their life? have a bad outcome. Friends? Yes. Some, some of them grew up to be great guys. I mean, with, with families and great children and people, and, you know, workers. And some of them, uh, I, I have to say on most cases, a lot of them grew up to be, you know, drug addicts or drug dealers or, or joining organized crime and things like this in most cases. In, in, you know, so as far as my friends concerned, the guys I grew up, some were real bad guys. I mean, you know, you like, you know, I had friends that killed guys out of jail, killed guys in jail, you know, were in and out of jail constantly. You know, even girls that I would go with that were in the neighborhood that I would, that I would, they go, we can't see you on the Los Angeles. We can't see you with these guys, you know. Guys, some people bad, real bad guys. But I was respected because I could, I worked at being a bad guy. Not bad in the sense of being a bad person. I worked at being, I worked at, every day I worked, I worked out, you know. I mean, I worked at being a tough, a physically tough guy, you know. But, you know, I wouldn't mess with you, but you don't, don't, you can't do this, you know. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid. Of, I'm not afraid of getting hurt. And, and if you do this, I work at this. You better work at it. And do you think that's how you survived the war zone? Yeah, I survived the war zone in both cases. You know, I went from a harsh environment and survived that in East New York, and then I went to Vietnam, and I was shot three times. I was wounded three times. I was shot. I was booby-trapped, I was hit with a grenade trap, and then I was shot through the die. You know, so I survived that, and I think I survived that because of my... Not, not because... I, they put me in the mountains. They took me from the city and threw me into the mountains. I wasn't really good at this. You know, with all the training they thought they gave me, you know, I'm, I'm in the mountains, in the jungle. What the heck do I know about a jungle, you know? But I had good intuition. My, my, my character and my, my, you know, my intuition, you know, I'm, my, I'm very aware. I'm very aware, and, and I'm blessed. So I figured that's, that, that'll get me through this. So I volunteered to be point man. You know, I was 20. But the kids 20 then, 19, 20, they look like they're 15, you know? These guys, and I was in a condo. I was in a... Uh, 101st Airborne set to 502, so I was appointed for a recon team, you know? But these kids are like, they, they, they look like they're 15, 16 years old, you know? I said, oh, I want to be appointed. Mm. I, I want to know what's up there, you know? I want to know what's going on. So I survived that too, you know? And now I'm working on a, I'm working on a, a sequel, you know, after I come out of the service. So now 
that's when a lot of people know me after, you know, after you know, I'm, I'm, I'm diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, PTSD. Um, and I go to the veterans, I go to my veterans group every Tuesday, you know, and, and I take meditation, I do the right thing. And, and I have, a, I have a, a wonderful, wonderful life. And I have to say successful because I'm a musician. Who don't want to be a musician? I play. It's not what I did all my life, but apparently I'm a good entertainer. I play in Manhattan. I play in, in, in Naples, Florida. And I lived in Costa Rica five years, so I played with, uh, with uh, Latin bands and reggae bands there. So I, I came a long way in a very short time, you know. Absolutely. And that's what I do. And, and in Costa Rica, it took me five years to write this book, you know. Because of my, because I don't have that type of education, but I, I, I did it in Costa Rica. I, I have ten acres in this beautiful mountain. It's paradise. It's a jungle. It's just like Vietnam, but without the, without the fighting. The people are wonderful. You know, I love that Spanish culture, the music, and that whole thing. You know, it's very close to the Italian culture. But um, you know, as far as families concerned, you know. But tell me and, about uh, tell, tell me yeah, a little bit more about your book. I, who do you think this is going to appeal to? This is an interesting tale that you're telling about well, your you, you know I, I first of all I, you know anybody that watches which is a wide audience that like the godfather or goodfellas or wise guys say you know we in, in goodfellas we fought those guys that were in good that wound up of inevitably being those guys from goodfellas you know and you know and, and uh we fought all those guys you know and then the Gotti crew and that whole thing and from Rockland, we fought those guys too you know I mean, then, then I became friends with most of them, you know, and they were bad guys, but I didn't get involved. I, I never involved my. So anybody who would, would like anything about the mind, and believe me, people all over the world, in Norway, wherever you're going to go, they like mafia stories. So this is the street, part mafia, black fighting, blacks, Puerto Ricans, um, you know, Italian gangs, uh, you know, with my, uh, East New York, was the white guys were mostly uh, Italian, Jewish. And and uh, and, uh, and some Irish guys. So you you never seen a non tough Irish guy, and uh, you know and and you know so they it, it's 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 about that unorganized street gang that was people respected that all of East New York you know and East New York was the, probably one of the baddest places in Brooklyn itself, but it was East New York and then Newark was respected and Newark Avenue was on the top of that list you know. Tell me a little bit more about your mentor, Mr. Nero. Uh, Mr. Nero, he, he died two years ago. Um, he, he, he was 90. I was uh, 12 or 13 when I first met him. He was in his 30s, and he mentored me. Every day after school, I'd go in a park house. He'd teach me how to box. And, you know, when I first went there, I, wanted, I said, Mr. Nero, could you teach me how to fight? He said, he stopped, and I looked. And it's in the book, and I looked, and I'm like, uh-oh, I said something wrong. And he's like... He's like, uh, for lesson number one, it's not called fighting, it's called boxing, it's a science. You have to use your brains. You have to use your mind, you know? I says, okay, that's my first lesson. I'm never going to call it fighting again, you know? And, and, and we became such good friends all those years. You know, I mean, we weren't in contact all the time. I went to Vietnam. I came home. I, I came on Medivac. I was in the hospital. Um, they they medevaced me to, to St. Albert's Hospital in Queens, and he came to see me, and, and we remained good friends for years. I would take him. I, had, uh, I was in business. I was an entrepreneur. I had high-end accounts in New York. He would come with me, and we'd go to flying restaurants or jazz clubs like the Blue Note, you know, and he took me to see, like, Sugar Ray Robinson fight and the Golden Gloves, and, 
and I took him to the Golden Gloves later on in life, you know. I was training to take Jimmy out of, out of box. And uh, we remained friends, and uh, the city actually named a, a, a street after him uh, right outside of Ebbets Field. It's, uh, it was McKinley Place. It might still have the same name, but it's now called Reginald Nero Way. That's what kind of... Uh, that's how he influenced the youth, black youth, white youth. It didn't matter to him. That's why it didn't matter to me, you know? It doesn't matter to me. You, you might look at it and say, oh, you, I'm a bit of a racist. And some, yeah, maybe, you know, if you want to look at it that way, you, you could pick out things. Like, you could pick out things out of the Bible, you know? I mean, but, but, um, but, but you know what? If you work with me, I work with you. I could care less, you know? Sounds like you know? a wonderful, wonderful it, gentleman. Yeah, I, I don't care who you are. You work with me, I'm right there with you, you know. If you're garbage, then you're a piece of garbage, then you're a piece of garbage. I don't care what you are and who you are, you know. And you can call me anything you want. I really don't care, you know. I don't have any regrets, you know. And now I'm writing the sequel, so I'm not going to tell you much about that. But <laughs> what I'll tell you about it is it starts with the last time I got shot in Vietnam. I got shot through the thigh. We got, we got there was nine of us. On a, on, we set up a night ambush, and we got overrun at, 2.30 in the morning, and I got shot through the thigh, and um, we didn't, they didn't get us out till 9 o'clock the next morning, seven and a half hours, I laid in the jungle, shot through the thigh, you know, I'm lucky I didn't bleed to death, I'm lucky I didn't lose my leg, it didn't hit that femur bone, the largest bone in your body, and um, and I survived it, I, I, I feel I'm blessed, you know, and that's all I can say. You know? It's it's an amazing, yeah. amazing tale you're telling us. Yeah. And so, then, you know, I lived. We lived in Costa Rica for five years, which I loved. Um, I, we rescued animals. Me and my wife Wendy, and you know, I had at one time or another fifteen, eighteen dogs, cats, uh, chickens, ducks, geese, pigs. Who I loved, I love pigs, and I, I'm a vegetarian. I don't eat meat because I love animals. You know, I'm just just uh, a real advocate for animals. And our veterans, you know, and and children, you know, and little children, you know. St. Jude is like, uh, you know, children's cancer. They can, they can get taken care of for nothing. So it makes it such a great country. You know? Absolutely. Now, surviving yeah. the war zone, if this was turned into a movie, is there one scene in the book that stands out in your mind that you think would make the uh, the make the story come, come to life? Uh, there's a lot of stories, a lot of fight stories, but there are a few big ones. Club Chateau, the Saints on Far Rockaway, the Mafia, you know, fighting with the Mafia and, and doing that. They would stand out for entertainment purposes, you know, um, you know, and, and things like that. I mean, at the end of the Mafia story, I tell children of all nationalities, I don't care who you are, especially Italian kids too, you don't have to do this. This is not, this, these are the maggots of, of your society. Whether you're Italian, whether you're Jewish, I don't care who you are. You're Irish, you're Irish. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. Blacks, these are the maggots. Those guys on the street selling drugs, they're the maggots. I don't care what they're driving, it doesn't matter. They're, they're the lowlifes of, of your existence, you understand? And when you look up to them for mentors, you're going to you're gonna follow in their footsteps. It's going to be all wrong, you know? You could come out of this very... I, I consider myself very successful. I don't have a lot of money. I'm comfortable, you know, but my kids are all business. They're comfortable. They're all great. I got great children. I wrote this book for my children so they would know me before Vietnam, before the, the real harshness of me doing damage to people um, and, 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 you know, and, and before before my post, you know, my PTSD, 
Um, you know, so at least they, they know my character before, you know, and they know my character now. They grew up with me. They know my hard work. You know, I told my children years ago, I wrote, what can I give my children that I don't have money? I don't come from money. Uh, you know, I, I don't have, I don't have an education, what, good education. What can I give my children? And, and that... I said, and I, and I wrote down, I could, I could live the example. And that's exactly what I did. I worked hard, which my wife's complaint was I'm always working, but I tried to build a business and I worked really hard. I had successful businesses. One of my sons now has one of my factories, my businesses. And, and I, well, what I did was I, 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 I wrote down, uh, all, all I could do is this. I can live a decent life. I, I, there was no alcohol in my house, no drugs in my house, no pornography in my house. All my children see me do is work. My daughter and my two sons. What do they know how to do today? Work. That's what they know. They're very successful in their attitude in their work. No drugs, no alcohol. I don't have those problems many, many parents have today, you know, with their children being drug addicts in jail or in and out of jail, you know. I'm blessed. I, so being blessed like this, I could do exactly what I want to do, you know. I could play my music. I could go to Manhattan. I play at this place, Sophia's, Sophia's Cafe in, uh, in Lounge in um in Manhattan on East uh, East 50th Street, uh, you know. So every time I go, I got a standing gig where I, I play there. I mean, the guy is Tommy's my best one of my best friends, and so I'll play there. You know, when I when I go up to New York, I play all over Costa Rica and all the La Playas. So I do that. And most of I play now in Naples, Florida. I play saxophone, I play flute, I sing, and I'm high energy. You certainly every day. <laughs> you certainly are high uh, energy for sure. Now, the, right. the book is titled. Surviving the War Zone, and it sounds like an exciting read. Thank you, Richard Quarantello, for okay. joining us today. Oh, thanks. thanks a lot. I'm sorry for doing all the talking. No, I love Thank it. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about where we can get a copy of this. Oh, uh, you can get it from uh, Barnes & Noble. You can get it from Amazon. Uh, or uh, Ex Libris is uh, my publisher. You can get it from down at Libris.com. You know, and uh, I, can, can I just mention one more thing? Absolutely. I, you know, how I got the name of the book. Let me say, you know, I was playing in Naples. I played with a band in, in, in uh, Marco Island, and everybody would come to me, bar none, even today, and they go, they tell me you're from Brooklyn, where you're from. I go, East New York. Everybody, everybody, bar none, would go, whoa. The other people from Brooklyn, like Bay Ridge or Mets and Earth, they would go, oh, the war zone. Right. So I said, that's what it was, the war zone, and that's how the name was. That's how I got the name, really, you know. But, um, yeah, you can buy the book. I appreciate it. Whoever, you know, I, I, I just appreciate it. I'm having a wonderful life. I'm working on my sequel. So I wish everybody love and success. Very good. You know? And live, live your dreams, people. Live your dreams, you know. Don't let the world bother you. The title of the book, Surviving the War Zone. The author, Richard Quarantello. For more information on Richard Quarantello, you can do a search online and... Find him under his name, Q-U-A-R-A-N-T-E-L-L-O. Yeah, they get me. They'll get me from Quarantello. They can look up Quarantello or Boston or Amazon. Thank you for joining us, Richard. For Steve Jorgensen and Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com.
Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. For Steve Jorgensen and Ex Libris Online, this is J. Douglas Barker. Today I have the honor of visiting with Lisa Masters to discuss a book that she has titled Build a Boob. I don't know exactly what that means. It sounds intriguing. Lisa, what in the world is this book about? This book is about uh, my experience with breast cancer reconstruction. So it's all about the 15 surgeries that I went through, um, having failure after failure, trying to rebuild my breast. And during the whole entire process of rebuilding my breast, um, there was a certain point in time where I made my own prosthesis. And just kidding around, I would tell everyone that it was my build-a-boob um, so when I went to write the book about my experience, that was just the title that came into my head. Well, that's a great title, and, and certainly humor is an important part of the healing process. In Chapter 1, you say this, I'm one of millions a breast cancer survivor. Cancer touches each of us. We all know someone who has been somehow affected by the disease, and this is your story that you're talking about then. Right. Right. How did you come to write the book? What motivated you to want to tell your story? Well, reconstruction is limited to a certain amount of surgeries. Um, healthcare, as you know, is um, a process that's difficult. Um, through the 15 surgeries, I think there were times when my doctor wanted to give up, but I wouldn't let him give up. I couldn't live with the way I looked. And we proceeded, and my insurance company, which is an HMO, continued to to pay for these um, surgeries, which was, first of all, shocking to me. And amazing, um, yes. Second of all, yeah, because it was an HMO. And, um, but it was just really important because we spent so much energy on breast cancer awareness, which is wonderful, don't get me wrong, um, but nobody ever really wants to talk about what happens after, what happens with breast cancer when breast cancer goes wrong and I had infection after infection after infection and you know it was one step forward two steps back so finally when I got to the end end of the road after four and a half years uh, you know my doctor we, we both cried and he was you need to tell your story mm. there are just so many women who live in silence and they don't talk about the scars, and they don't talk about the surgeries, and they give up, and they don't have the, the resources or the money. And sometimes they have to live like this. And, so, you know, 
for many people it's okay and they're very happy not having reconstruction, but there are a lot more women who are affected by the scars emotionally than, like I said, because everyone keeps it silent and they don't want to talk about it. So, I, you know, he told me, he was with me, and he said, you know, you really just write your story. And I said, yeah, I think I do. I mean, it's a way to give back and to uh, to help women who really need it. Because, like I said, nobody wants to talk about it. And essentially, you know, I just decided to make myself an open book. Many people are going to be very grateful for your candid descriptives of what took place during the process of your recovery. Lisa, bring us up to date on your current health status. I have completed the process. Um, this October, I will be seven years cancer-free. Wonderful. Um, it took four and a half years of reconstruction. So it's been about two years since my last surgery. Um, I could actually use a few touch-ups here and there, but, you know, right now I'm 53, so I, I, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. You've also been inspired to start a foundation. Tell that us about that. That is my dream. That too, uh, and, and I've already, I, it's not set up yet, but um, I'm working with my plastic surgeon. Uh, he wants to work with me on it to try to get others involved, other plastic surgeons, where they would donate their time, implants, um, you know, as much surgical supplies as they can. The problem we're finding is that hospitals are not willing to donate their time. So that's where the money has to come from, which is understandable. Everybody has a cause. You know, hospitals are in this for, you know, they have to sustain, and they're in it, many of them are in it to make a profit. So it makes sense that they're not going to donate their time. Therefore, there has to be some way for women who can't afford uh, even just the, the basic out-of-pocket expenses that it costs to have your breast reconstructed. Um, for instance, my deductible was $3,500, and my out-of-pocket expenses were $5,000. Now, this is a year. So over the course of four and a half years, that's $20,000. Mm-hmm. And not everybody has that. You know, I was very fortunate. Um, but it was hard. I'm not going to say, you know, it was easy because it wasn't. So by establishing a foundation, again, it's in the early stages, if we can get doctors to come on board donating their time, we can raise money and make it possible for more women to receive, receive the uh, reconstruction that they don't, they aren't getting. Tell us about the controversial aspects of your book. There are some things that might alarm readers or surprise them. Ah, oh, the photos. The, I put every, almost every single photo I could uh, chronologically um, outlining my experience. These are the medical photos, and they are very grotesque, some of them. But they also, at the end, offer hope because it shows the success, the final results. Um, so, yeah, I mean, show, as showing them, people don't like to see them. And yet, this sounds like an important read for folks who are going through this process of recovery or facing the challenges of cancer. I, I, I hope it helps. The actual process of putting this book together and telling your story, how long did it take? It took me about a year to actually sit there and, and figure out how I wanted to do this so as not to, you know, I don't want to scare people. I don't want to scare women into thinking that all mastectomies are this way. And um, I just, you know, I took my time, put all the photos together, went through all the um, the post-operative reports from my doctor, and um, just put it together. Are there other books in the marketplace that are similar to the one you've written, or is yours unique? Uh, you know, I don't really think there are that many that are similar to mine. 
Um, I've been very fortunate. Just recently, I've gotten um, been added to the Huffington Post blog, so now I have a blog there, um, which is Huffington Post, and you just Google it and look for Lisa Masters. And I've done a few blogs and gotten some response. And I also have a Facebook page, uh, which is Build a Boob After the Cure. And um, the responses that I'm getting from women are just, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to find information. Because I've done my own research, even today, finding research on women who have experiences like mine is not out there. Um, I was also lucky enough to speak last year at the Daytona Beach Breast Cancer Symposium, and I showed my photos on stage. Uh, you know, I obviously warned everyone, um, but it was a breast cancer symposium, so it was okay. Um, I had women coming up to me saying, that's me. Mm. My sister was sent home from a university hospital looking like that, saying there's nothing that can be done. Now, using fat injections, is a new, relatively new procedure, and there are doctors who are performing this, but not to the extent of the injuries that I had, because over the course of years, it, it, the, I had liposuction, which is a fat injection technique, and it actually regenerated the skin that was damaged by radiation. So it allowed me to hold an implant, whereas there are breast cancer reconstruction surgeries now where they're taking fat injections and building it from scratch, where mine was, you couldn't build it from scratch. Hmm. And if you, if you see the photos, you'll understand. How was your cancer first discovered? Uh, it was a mammogram. So I waited until I was 46 years old, and they did not discover it in the breast area itself. It had already spread to the lymph nodes, and that's what showed up on the mammogram. So my cancer was very difficult to detect, um, and it was only on the left side, which is why I decided to have a bilateral mastectomy for prophylactic measures so that I would never have to go through that again, which is you're hearing that more and more from women that, who are having um, mastectomies. They're choosing to do both just as, because it often comes back. So that, that's similar to what Angelina Jolie has just experienced then. Yes, although luckily she didn't have cancer. Correct. So her her decision, she was um, very fortunate. And again, you know, if you bring this up, the um, issue of money, you know, to go and have that, even at, because right now that's an elective procedure, what Angelina Jolie did. So you can't just, if you don't have the money, that's what, maybe about $30,000 worth of surgery. Yes. If she had more than one. Now, you can go in and you can have it all done at the same time. I'm not sure if she had tissue expanders or not. Hmm. If she had tissue expanders, it would have taken a, two different surgeries, I believe. Now, who do you think this book's going to appeal to, and, and what kind of help do you think they'll receive from reading this? Hope. I think they're going to do some more research. I asked them to talk to their doctors. Um, my plastic surgeon um, informed me of the numbers of plastic surgeons who actually do reconstructive surgeries, which is a very small amount. It's actually 3% of all plastic surgeons. It's actually less than that. Um, if you go to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons for 2012 statistics, we need more plastic surgeons to come on board and 
Women need to empower themselves by finding these doctors and say, hey, I need help. Will you do this? Please continue. Um, one of the issues with the, uh, the lack of physicians is, again, money. Um, health insurance, if you're a plastic surgeon, most of your practice is elective surgeries. You get your money up front. You don't have to worry about insurance companies or hospital procedures that are already negotiated pricings or bill collecting. So, you know, for the beauty industry, if you were a plastic surgeon, what would you do? You're going to go for the money, which yes. is, you know, understandable. So what I want is for more plastic surgeons to give more time towards their practice to increase breast cancer um, reconstructive surgeries as well as awareness, and I want women to be more active in saying, telling their doctors, I'm not happy. This is not the result that I wanted. What can we do now? You had a lot of infections during this process as well. Several, several infections. Um, there, there were, I lost three implants, tissue expanders um, that had to be removed at the doctor's office. They were so bad. So, you know, it, it's, it's a difficult thing. For me, it was, I, I had to move forward. I felt like I had to continue until I was happy. Um, I don't know. For other women, it may, you know, it's, it's a little harder. But if you want your breast to be symmetrical, and if you feel you need to do this, then I want women to continue and never lose hope and never give up. That's the main thing about the, why I wrote the book. It's because 15 surgeries, that's a lot of surgery. Well, it's an inspirational inspirational story. Uh, 81 pages. The book title, again, is Build a Boob After the Cure. And it's the personal story of author Lisa Masters. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit more about where folks can get a copy of your book. Uh, they can get it at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or you can go directly to Exlibris.com. You can even get it on eBay. And your book is available in three formats. Correct. There's a color version. The color version runs between $28 to $30. That's an 8 by 10 The reason why that's more expensive is because there are 25 different photos in there, which takes up a lot more ink. Um, there's also a black and white format, which is runs about fifteen dollars, fourteen, fifteen dollars, and then the ebook is in color. So many people are turning to their Kindles or their iPod, iPads to to read. So that's only about seven ninety nine, eight ninety nine. All right. So if you can do it that way, that's you know the best way to go. And at this point, have you developed a website? I do. I have a website. It is www.built-a-boob.com. And I'm sure you've got some important resources listed on that site. And then, again, I have the uh, Facebook page, which is Build a Boob After the Cure. And then you can also find me at the uh, Huffington Post blog, Lisa Masters. Thank you, Lisa, for joining us today. And once again, the title of the book is Build a Boob After the Cure. The Personal Journey of Author Lisa Masters. For Steve Jorgensen, 
and Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.